Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Archishman Choudhury and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University. Our podcast for today features two guests. I have the pleasure of introducing to you Dr. Chantni Singh, a research consultant at the Indian Institute for Human Settlements, Bangalore, India, where she researches on issues of climate change adaptation, differential vulnerability and well-being, disaster risk, and rural urban migration. Dr. Singh has authored reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and she has widely published on climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction, natural resource management, climate information services, livelihood transformations, and human migration. Joining Dr. Singh is our second guest for the day, Professor Roger Few of the University of East Anglia. Broadly speaking, Professor Roger Few's research lies at the confluence between research in disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation, with links to themes of livelihoods or well-being, especially in low-income settings, environmental health, water security, and social justice, on which he has a prolific number of publications. Of late, Professor Few's research has increasingly focused upon studying long-term processes of recovery from extreme events. He's involved in various research projects across South America, the Caribbean islands, East Africa, and India. Today, Dr. Chandni Singh and Professor Roger Few will tell us about their collaborative research project based in India, which is entitled Recovery with Dignity. So without much further ado, Dr. Singh and Professor Few, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Um, so could I just ask you a number of questions to start off the podcast? Would you please tell us what is this project about? What, what, what does recovery with dignity mean? And how would it be different from other recovery projects after disasters? Okay, well, perhaps I can start. Um, the idea behind the project really stemmed from the, the recognition, certainly the recognition that we feel is that the disaster recovery is an aspect of disaster risk and disaster risk research, which hasn't really had that same degree of critical research that other aspects have. So for example, around issues around perhaps preparedness and mitigation. Um, and our contention is that recovery is often perhaps thought about as, it's just a sort of an extension of, of getting things back to normal. And, and not enough critical thought going into to understanding what, how the actual needs of the people affected by disasters change and actually the dynamics that happen over time. So we're particularly interested in the long-term period. So we kind of pick up at the point where relief efforts and so on have 
have started to sort of shift um, and perhaps some of the attention to the disaster impacts in the media and in society have started to to reduce the sort of immediate and because the, the tangibility of the event is, is no longer there let's say um, for the wider population but for the but our own experience of research is that for the population affected of course it is very tangible those that survive and particularly the poorest and more marginalized in society face enormous challenges in rebuilding their livelihoods but more than just their livelihoods in rebuilding their well-being and so some of these ideas sort of coalesced and there was a, an opportunity to do some research that was also sort of linked into i guess more into um uh into the humanities to enable disaster affected people to voice their own needs but also be respected for the situation they're in so another thing that we've observed in other situations is as time passes the positive sort of cohesive forces in society that happen that that, that tend to coalesce after a disaster when there's a lot of care and attention to those affected they begin to dwindle um, and people who are most affected and who continue to need the most support sometimes tend to be viewed in a in a negative way that over time they become the sort of patients i suppose of people and the, and the and this idea that they are continuing to deserve support um, from the rest of society starts to dwindle um, but another factor within all this is the recognition that after a disaster happens most of the recovery activity that takes place is undertaken by the people themselves and particularly in situations where people don't have much resources they often club together locally with sort of with their um, kin folk but rather than it being something that's that's completely dependent on outside support the most recovery activity is done by people themselves but of course if you're in a, if you're in a resource poor situation you do need support and it's recognizing that capacity and agency of people so the project was trying to sort of capture a lot of these these different elements and um so together with so with with iihs uea the team we, we'd, we'd worked some of us had worked together on previous projects and we came together and decided to focus on the three states in india and i'll i'll maybe pass over to chandni now to to talk a little bit about that sure so uh, yeah just to uh, backtrack a bit i think uh, just to mention that this project was uh, funded by the british academy and there was an explicit focus on uh, of course the most vulnerable but also this idea of bringing in the social sciences and the humanities in particular to think about some of these challenges so we had quite a focus on not only people like us who do work on vulnerability climate change and disaster risk but also bringing in um filmmakers and people who work in the humanities to think about some of these aspects of how people recover from disasters how do they portray their own needs uh coming to uh, yeah the geographical location of this project i guess we um we are, i mean we started out by building on previous work that we've done in two indian states odisha and tamil nadu 
And um, in both these states, we've done a lot of uh, research and uh, some kind of implementation actually in Odisha also and Tamil Nadu around disaster recovery and inclusive recovery really. And uh, while we were writing up the proposal, there was also this whole um, uh, recurrent floods that took place back to back two years in a row in Kerala. And then we realized that there's a need there also to talk about how, um, you know, in the as a disaster is taking place, how are people recovering and trying to understand that. So that's how we ended up with these three states, uh, Orisha, Tamil Nadu and Kerala. And uh, really, I think focusing on the most marginal uh, people affected in these states. Thank you, Dr. Singh, and thank you, Professor Few. If I might just uh, build up on that, you're talking about three different states, although all of them are located close to the sea. And uh, if I'm not wrong, a significant portion of the economic infrastructure is dependent upon livelihood that stems from the sea. What are the challenges that you see in terms of recovery process, uh, particularly with regard to infrastructural development or how uh, communities respond to disasters in these three different states of India? Yeah, so I think um, I'll, I'll focus on some of our uh, experiences in Tamil Nadu. That's the region I'm most uh, familiar with. And I think given the long history of disasters in Tamil Nadu, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting case to talk about. So, of course, as you say, it's, uh, it has a long coastline and uh, livelihoods are dependent on being at the coast. Their, uh, fishing is a very significant livelihood there. Uh, as well as yeah, other infrastructure along the coast, tourism, for example. But as we know, Tamil Nadu faces a lot of, I mean, recurrent cyclones, which are increasing in frequency and also intensity. Uh, but it's important to understand that this, the, the nature of risk is not something that's new out there. There are communities living along the coast who have always dealt with risk. It's perhaps the nature of that risk that's changing. And also, of course, the kind of development that's taking place. So you've got Chennai, the capital of Tamil Nadu, which is expanding rapidly and often uh, in, an, in a way that's not very ecologically sensitive. Um, so, yeah, so that's one thing. The second thing I want to highlight is that while there are these uh, states and places that are coastal, and we tend to focus on fishing livelihoods, which are very tangible and apparent to you as soon as you visit some of these villages along the Tamil Nadu coast, there are also other livelihoods that are taking place. So in Nagapatnam district, where, which is where one of the places where we did our research, uh, there are these vast salt pans where people, um, you know, harvest the salt. That's one, which is a livelihood that's not spoken about much, but was also affected really uh, strongly after the uh, cyclone Gaja that happened in 2018. Then there's also the whole story of farming livelihoods along the coast, which doesn't get as much uh, mention in disaster recovery. So if you look at some of the, the interventions that the state does, they're very focused on fishing livelihoods, which is understandable. But then some of these livelihoods get marginalized, like farming livelihoods, where because of a cyclone or because of just the seawater coming in, there's a lot of salt water intrusion and the groundwater is then salty and then you know the live the the farms are i mean you it's very difficult to cultivate that land and it takes many many years to restore that land 
So I think in this, uh, what we've been seeing at least is that, yes, these states that we worked in, they are um, at risk because of their location. They, there is that understanding and people have, you know, dealt with that over generations. But increasingly that uh, risk, I think the nature of the risk is changing a bit. And also there are some livelihoods that are not um, recognized as being as much at risk as perhaps fishing livelihoods. Um, thank you, Dr. Singh. May I now probe you a little bit more on how people perceive long-term recovery as you and Professor Roger Few have been talking about. How do they perceive long-term recovery from disasters? Is it uh, tangible in the way they assert their grievances or is it something that, that can be only expressed through different forms like uh, rebuilding uh, shelters or um, investing more and more in terms of sustainable environmental livelihood opportunities in areas that are prone to disasters? Well, I think it's all of those things and more. Um, and it will obviously obviously vary from, from place to place. Um, so along with issues around infrastructure, and rebuilding livelihoods. One of, the, one of the key things that we really want to emphasize through our research is, is recognition of these more kind of, these less tangible um, aspects of recovery, which are just as important in people's lives. So around rebuilding a sense of community, if there's been a lot of sort of destruction, dealing with psychosocial aspects of recovery, um, not just in that, in that sort of immediate kind of emergency mental health phase following a, a disaster, but over the, over the long term and recognizing how that itself has a dynamic. And for some people, the, the passage of recovery is, is not a gradual rebuilding. It, it itself is, is very uneven and sometimes deeply hit by other, other sort of problems. And so genuine attention to that, that aspect and supporting communities to to be able to support each other as well, rebuilding social networks. All these things are, are mentioned, and I and I and I raise this because I, this is something that's also clear from work in in other parts of the world. Um, not necessarily an easy easy thing to support. Not necessarily an easy thing to get to get funding to support because it because it's you know typically the focus the economic sector focuses on rebuilding infrastructure and so on, but. It is, it is key and recognizing that it is that specific and special consideration may be needed to just how the long-term impacts of a disaster play out in these social and psychological senses. Uh, I think uh, this idea of what recovery is, is uh, and how is it understood by different people is one of the things was, that was at the core of this project. So we, uh, we tried to explore that through various ways. We looked at policy documents to understand what does the state really say about recovery. And um, there is obviously an understanding over time when you look at the policy documents as well, that the idea of recovery as only infrastructure, where you're building houses and rebuilding roads, that has shifted to make it a little more inclusive, talking about building capacities of these uh, affected communities through you know, setting up early warning systems, 
evacuation procedures, those kinds of things. And then there's also been a lot of funding and a lot of work, at least in Tamil Nadu and Orissa, about uh, on uh, rebuilding livelihoods, so strengthening livelihoods, a lot of focus on gender and women empowerment also through as a, you know, as a positive side effect of some of the uh, recovery interventions. But then, so, so most of these things uh, are typically tangible, measurable forms of recovery. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a reason why these modes of recovery are mentioned in policy documents are funded by large funders working in the humanitarian sector. Now, when uh, the other side of it was, we went around uh, villages in Tamil Nadu talking about or uh, conducting these workshops where we wanted to understand people's own idea of what recovery means to them. And there where we sat down and had these very interactive sessions, these group discussions, uh, where we'd ask them to draw their idea of recovery. Of course, the house gets drawn first, and then you've got the road and the school, which is which is actually fitting with that state idea of recovery. But then you've got people drawing their community. You've got people drawing their temple, which in one case we had seen the whole temple roof had been blown off. And that's important because that's a community place where people come together. Many, I think most of the people drew trees because trees are the things that get damaged in uh, these very high speed cyclones. So then you get a sense of, and then we actually ask people to talk about these pictures and tell us what, what they were trying to represent through those drawings. And you get a, a very different idea of recovery, which is often not captured in these interventions that are taking place. So I think one of our findings or one of the things we want to showcase in this project is really that there are multiple ideas of recovery and how do we really bring them in when we're thinking about long-term interventions, you know? Thank you, yes. And I, I do think, you know, regardless of, of, of context, really, there are some, there are some sort of, things that are close to being universal. Um, and one is this, this fundamental recognition that the, the access to resources that you have, the assets you have, they don't just, they don't just reshape your ability to get, to get, to get back to where you were. Um, they, they make you much more susceptible to further shocks. They make it much, that much harder um it's if you have if you have more resources if you have for example some form of savings you immediately have the possibility tough though it is to draw on something to make to restart that slow process if you're in a situation where you're already living on the margins and you've lost the assets you have you don't have you don't have that resource, even that even small though it might may be, to make a start with again. You have to either use your ingenuity if you and and whatever resources are available, but fundamentally, and then in most of the contexts we're in, it does require, you know, a consistent helping hand, much more than just just relief. But it's a helping hand not to not to you know become a beneficiary. It's a helping hand to actually restart the agency that everybody has in life to to rebuild their livelihoods. And I think this does apply, <clears throat> it, it applies in all contexts. And in all contexts, it's a struggle to be able to provide that support. Um, you know, I'm not, um, 
of course, there's not lim limitless finance, there's not limitless government capabilities out there. So what we're, but I think what we're kind of arguing for is a readiness and a recognition that, that it's not a kind of one size fits all type of approach and it can't be. And in tandem with that is this, you know, this, this phrase that we, we often hear when we're doing research with different people, which is, you know, everybody was affected the same. You know, it's not just that group, everyone was affected, or we're all in the same boat. And, um, you know, to, to sort of sort of paraphrase what somebody once said, um, well, they may be in a boat, but they're certainly not in my boat. Um, it's, it's clear that everybody's not affected the same. They may, in a, in a, in a very sort of immediate physical sense, yes, you know, you may lose let's let's just focus on damage to to property let's say you may lose most of you may lose your roof of an expensive house or you may lose your roof on a, on a poorer dwelling if you lose a roof on the poorer dwelling uh, in this sort of situation probably there'll be structural damage throughout the whole dwelling and it will collapse so the whole thing's gone and then you and then where do you get the resources to rebuild if you have a house um and the damage is there you there's probably a fair chance that you can access a loan or you, you have the you know, collateral to be able to do that, to rebuild. So it all starts at such a, it's such a, a, a different way. And to just see as every, everybody is on the kind of the same slope of recovery is, um, just doesn't match the reality really. Just to add something to that actually, uh, what we often see when when you the all the things that Roger said, these ideas about what a disaster does to people, uh, where do we get that information? If you're a lay person, where do you where do you get these ideas from? It's typically media reports. You might uh, see something, and from uh, the media uh, review that we did, so we looked at international and local uh, reporting on disasters. You tend to see that disaster impacts are often spoken of, of course, right after the disaster. So that's one thing that immediate reporting. And then when you look at recovery, it kind of tapers off. So there's no long-term reporting. The second thing really is impacts are discussed in aggregate and in tangible forms. So 3000 people lost their lives, 2000 houses were uh, destroyed. And so again, there's that focus on tangible things and aggregate numbers. And that's where I think what Roger was mentioning, these more um, differentiated impacts get lost. So who were those 3000 people? Are they impacted similarly? That kind of narrative just gets lost out. So I feel there's, yeah, so that I think it's, it's um, something, it's not only understanding what's happening on the ground, but then also the reportage that goes around it to then shape broader narratives around disaster impacts that really, uh, yeah, we're finding and needs to be questioned. Um, thank you, Dr. Singh. If I may ask you a question uh, on this, do you feel there has been a change in terms of voicing of grievances by, dif by different groups after disasters uh, over the past 20 odd years or so across uh, Orissa and Tamil Nadu, where you have conducted research? I think in some ways, the 
the way disasters are spoken about and how people talk about their needs and their priorities, there has been an opening up of that discussion in some ways. If you think about the, the tsunami in 2004 to present day Tamil Nadu and Urissa, I think there has been a change where there are more voices being heard. They're not always, um, I think, given the same value. So each actor in this whole space of disaster recovery, some people are heard more and some people are heard less, but there has been an opening out. And I think there is a broader discussion in India and definitely in these states around uh, both disaster impacts, preparing for disasters and then recovery, long-term recovery. But what tends to happen is whose voice is loudest? And that was something we were trying to also explore that which voices are included when you talk about recovery and which aren't. Uh, of course, there are the, there's the formal voice of the state and that of course is loud. And I personally believe I'm, that the state also has caught in its own priorities and um, you know, constraints. So they do what they can given the situation, given the finances they have. Uh, so there's that voice around uh, recovery, which is really important. But coming more specifically to your question around grievances and airing those, we've, from our work, we've seen there are multiple ways people do that. In Orissa, there's, uh, we did, a, did an analysis of uh, legal claims that are made. So cases that are filed by people or groups of people to sort of say, uh, to uh, talk about their uh, dissatisfaction with some of the recovery measures. For example, the houses they were allotted or uh, the places the houses they were allotted and all of that. So that's one kind of uh, mechanism to really air your grievances. The other thing we saw in Tamil Nadu, especially after Cyclone Gaja 2018-19, was uh, people formed, I mean, they, they sort of um, leveraged their political and social networks. So they would go to their local representatives, go to uh, tribal leaders and put forth their demands. But all of this, again, often tends to be focused on the relief phase when there's a lot of attention and there is some amount of funding versus the recovery phase where it takes a lot of sustained action to put that pressure and actually get the kinds of measures you want. In Chennai, there are some really active uh, civil society groups that uh, form kind of brokers. They talk on behalf of the community, but they, they are trying to bring that voice of the community really to the state. So there are all these actors in this place. You've got the community trying to, you know, uh, through legal claims, through grievance redressal mechanisms. There are these formal mechanisms as well that each recovery project typically has doing that. You've got these brokers in the middle trying to bridge it, bridge the connection between the state and the community or people. And then you've got the state, of course, trying to listen, but in most cases failing <laughs> to, uh, accurately capture what, what people need, yeah. I think in a, in a sort of global sense, and this is really sort of my perception rather than something necessarily um, hard borne out by, by systematic evidence, but, um, you know, there is, there is a global, global movement towards disaster restriction, which recognises that disasters are fundamentally socially generated, at least as much as they are the result of, of physical hazards. 
And that that sort of thinking obviously has become embedded in certainly it's become embedded in research and it's become embedded in the international architecture and the national level in, in governments, at least in policies and strategies. And to some extent, I think that is filtering through and through adv advocacy work, giving people the the you know the the let's say the recognition that of of their rights and the recognition of that that their their concerns about that these things aren't purely natural uh, uh, are valid. So I think you know I think to some extent it is happening, but but we can see the sort of there's still these very sort of conservative prevailing forces views around around disaster risk. And about what one should do about it, and obviously those are also links linked to ideas about the role of the states and whether it's you know a bigger role of the state and a lesser role of the state, and external intervention. Um, and I think it is particularly still heightened in within recovery field, and that's what we've been trying to say. Um, but fundamentally, I always believe people know people know these things. Um, people know where there's injustices and they know where what's right and what's and what's not right in terms of their situation um but yeah in the past it's generally been the case that that that, that there aren't so many mechanisms through which to to um, be able to express it it is changing i mean one thing that we haven't really looked at properly within the project i would say is the role of social media and how that's influencing things and it would be interesting to look at that um but also critically i think sometimes one can get carried away with the role of social media and the fact as we've seen recently in international politics not always a force for good um so i think you know there's some as aspects like that but i guess the point is still people do still still face prevailing prejudices and biases and structural barriers of course to 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 achieving a voice thank you dr singh and thank you professor few if i might just uh, probe you a little bit more in terms of policy issues particularly with regard to planning uh, you have been talking about chennai which is so close to the sea and so are two other major metro cities in india uh, for instance, Mumbai and Kolkata, and all of these have a common problem where the urban conglomerations keep on expanding, real estate keeps on encroaching upon mangroves and wetlands. I feel this is a theme common to all these three major cities. So as policy researchers or policy planners, what would be your recommendations uh, in order to plan better uh, so that there is even recovery in more tangible and concrete environmentally sustainable terms in the case of a disaster. Yeah, these are, I think, very pressing uh, issues that are facing so many Indian cities, not only coastal. In the coasts, it's perhaps more uh, apparent because of the floods that one sees, the cyclones and all of that. But then you've got your inland cities which are facing water scarcity and drought. So it's really this, this uh, um, tug of war between how much of your environment do you save and how do you really develop sustainably, urbanize sustainably. I think it's a challenge that various Indian cities, as you say, are facing. So if you look at uh, Chennai, 
2015 is when the uh, there was excessive rain and the floods happen and there are, of course it started off as being uh, spoken about as a one in hundred years rain event and just something that was a natural um, hazard that was so difficult to even uh, prepare for even uh, estimate happening ever forecast. And then slowly the conversation, I mean, many people said it's not only that Chennai has built over all its water bodies and wetlands and there's, there's a reason why the flood became a disaster the way it did, the way uh, so much of Chennai was flooded. What is interesting to say is that so 2015 the floods happened, Chennai did not have a comprehensive disaster management plan at that time and it was only after a lot of public pressure, a lot of very powerful people talking about just being so um, horrified that their city, this capital city of Tamil Nadu, this metropolitan of India was affected so badly. And there was a lot of public pressure and recognition from the government. And all of that came together in 2017 when Chennai uh, launched its disaster management plan. When you actually go into that plan, you realize a lot of the the conversation or the, the kinds of interventions that are spoken about are still really reactive. It's very much about when a flood happens, this is what we're going to do, but not proactive, not looking at uh, how do we develop as a city, really questioning how do we develop as a city and change our city development plan, uh, urban uh, development plans to sort of preserve some of our wetlands, to, to make sure that we are not um, uh, again, building on our riverbanks and all these things. And many people have written about this in the context of Chennai, but also Bombay and Calcutta. Uh, I guess so, one of the things that our research argues for, and I think is relevant in these coastal cities, but also other disaster prone uh, situations is, first of all, the way you measure and count vulnerability, the way you really assess who's vulnerable, which places in a city are vulnerable, or even rural areas, which villages, has to be more um, inclusive, has to be more uh, dynamic. You can't have these assessments of physical vulnerability. So right now, when you look at the Chennai Disaster Management Plan, it talks of flooding at two feet and flooding at five feet. And those are the areas that are vulnerable to flooding. But as we know, it, as Roger was mentioning earlier in our conversation, at uh, two feet, if you're in a mud house, it's very different, two feet of flooding in a mud house versus five feet of flooding if you're in a, a high rise building, it's, it's a completely different experience of the disaster. So I think this understanding of only measuring physical vulnerability is a big drawback and that should be something, there's a whole lot of research to show that we need to look at more temporal vulnerability, how it changes over time, how it's socially differentiated. Uh, so that's one, I think, one recommendation that how we assess and think about vulnerability and risk needs to change. And um, I think the second thing is really what we have been talking about today is really reimagining recovery to mean much more than just in the case of Chennai, for example, relocating people from the riverbanks to other areas. That isn't, that isn't inclusive recovery at all when you're moving people into flood prone areas again. So I think reimagining uh, what recovery means and yeah, this sounds strange, but like democratizing the idea of recovery. So bringing in people's voices to really think about what, uh, what recovery means to them is something that, yeah, this project and also generally we have 
not only us, I think other uh, researchers in the space also have been arguing for. Um, thank you, Dr. Singh. Referring back to your brief discussion about memorialization, which both you and Professor Few have pointed out, uh, how much is memorialization of a disaster part of a school curriculum? And here I have in mind school curriculums in Japan, where there is an extensive training towards disaster education, uh, spe especially regarding earthquakes. Do you come across anything of that sort uh, in the Indian states where you have researched or even uh, Professor Few uh, or for the areas that you have conducted research on? I think there is a, there's, it's probably more about the potential than, than, than the actuality of what's, of what's going on. I think um, work in schools obviously has a, you know, there's, it can play a key role um, and I think it personally think it is important, particularly in places which are particularly hazard prone. So where there's where there's a you know some sort of history, um, recognizing of course that things may change through through climate change adaptation. But I think you know using schools to to sort of change the the mentality um, uh, around well particularly I guess around forward planning where that is where that is possible and to and to to and i'm talking about this in all levels to, to build in this idea that that these are problems that we can with sufficient will we can manage they're not simply things these hazards disasters are not handed down on us um they are a product of of decisions that are made and I think so sort of so that there's in that sort of in that sense, of course, in that in that kind of more holistic sense. Um, there I'm aware of projects uh, uh, around the world which have focused on schools, some perhaps less much in, in terms of the curriculum, but more in terms of the schools being being a locus for for emergencies, emergency shelter and so on and, and building in that capacity. Um, so, I, so it's hard. It's hard to make any sort of judgment myself about about the curriculum development. Um, what I can suggest is that recovery, if it is, if there is this curriculum, I don't think recovery will be a, a large aspect in it because just because it hasn't really been talked about in quite that same integrated way as other aspects of risk. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chandni Singh and Professor Roger Few uh, for this wonderful conversation. We learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners are going to love this podcast. That's all we have got time for today. And thank you so much also to my colleague, Rene Mandeville, who worked behind the scenes and produced this podcast. And my name is Archishman Chaudhuri. You have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 